There's a piece of ice in my waters. If I start choking to death in a minute, there's plenty of nurses on hand that'll help me out, right? You got me? <laughs> like, no, you're on your own, buddy. We're uh, week three into our journey here, uh, talking about what it means to be a people who are formed into the image of the cross, what we're calling a cruciformed life, up to Christ and then out to the world. And as Paul wrote in Galatians, we looked at the first week, he said that I am laboring until Christ is formed in you. It's a long and gradual change. And a lot of the, the pace of the change um, is really directly tied to um, our willingness to kind of cooperate with the process of what God is doing in our lives and this forming process he has us in. And we talked about also week one that as living sacrifices, one of the challenges that we have is that we can just crawl off the altar when the transformation into Christ-likeness breaks us at times. So there's a trust factor there with the Father to come to a place of surrender and to echo the prayer of our Savior when he prayed, not my will, but yours be done in every area of our life, right? As we are being cruciformed, we are formed by all kinds of qualities. So the first couple of weeks, we talked about how we are formed by surrender. And then last week, we looked about being formed by freedom. Today, we're going to dive into the waters of being formed by reconciliation. And um, I'm really excited to travel this road with you today. The biblical definition of reconciliation is something to the effect of this. I have a slide up here. It means the end of estrangement caused by original sin between God and humanity. So because of our sin condition, all of us are born into this state of this severed relationship between us and God, and it must be restored in order for us to be in good standing before him. And how that comes about is what we're going to be talking about today. And that word estrangement is a really powerful word. It can be defined as this. It's a feeling that you do not understand someone or something or do not have any connection with him or her. You are no longer on friendly terms. And we hear that word a lot with family relationships. We'll say that, you know, a husband is estranged from his wife or uh, a mother is estranged from her children. And this theme is seen throughout the scriptures. And I want to highlight a couple of stories as we start this morning to, to kind of talk about and, and see just a tremendous view of the heart of God in the midst of a lot of dysfunction. So I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 33. It's page 48, just kind of right there at the beginning. And for those of you that are maybe just a little bit unfamiliar with this story that we're going to talk about today, um, let me just bring you up to speed on this moment. So some of you may have heard of, of Abraham. He was kind of the father of the, the nation of Israel, and he had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had some sons, twin boys, named Esau and Jacob. And Esau came out first, and so he was kind of given the title as the firstborn, and which in that culture meant that when it was time for the inheritance, the firstborn 
got the full inheritance of the father. So it was kind of this coveted thing. And Jacob was always kind of jealous of that, of what he saw in Esau and his kind of preferred standing. And so um, as young men, uh, Jacob tricked um, his father, who was old and, and couldn't see very well, and Esau out of that birthright. And it caused this great rift in their relationship. And Jacob lived in fear of the retribution that he figured he kind of had coming for his conniving ways. And so actually, Jacob leaves and he goes to a distant land and, and he's gone for over 20 years as he marries and has kids and, and kind of earns his way. And, and he decides that he's going to return and come back to his family. And when he, he gets there, he's, he's getting close to Esau. He sends a messenger out with some gifts for his brother, hoping to kind of butter him up a little bit. And the messenger comes back and he says, Esau's on his way with 400 men. And Jacob takes that as like, oh man, that can't be good. <laughs> and so he's kind of panicked and freaking out a little bit. So that's where we're going to pick the story up in chapter 33 of Genesis in verse 1. It says, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. I mean, that had to be such an incredibly powerful moment. Jacob did not see that kind of reception coming after all the things that he'd done to his brother. It had to be overwhelming for both of them. And uh, as I was studying this week, I came across an, kind of an illustration that somebody put together of what that, that moment, that scene might have looked like. But Jacob was surprised by grace that day. In Luke 15, we find the story of the prodigal son. I mean, you guys are familiar with that story. It's a story of a family that had two sons. The younger son asks for his, his part of the inheritance ahead of time, and he takes it and runs off to a distant land and spends it all on selfish and foolish things. And he kind of reaches rock bottom and decides, I've got to go back home to my dad. I don't have anything left. And he kind of puts his tail between his legs and practices his apology and and heads back home, but honestly, much like Jacob, he was kind of expecting a harsh reception. And instead, this is what he encounters in Luke 15, verse 20. I'll just read this one verse for you. It says, so he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So in both of these stories, the reactions were honest and unforced and deeply felt. And let me ask you this. Who ran in both of those stories? Who initiated? Yeah. Well, in both of them, it was not the person who had their tail between their legs who was in shame. It was the wrong party, so the father or, es or Esau were the ones running towards him. Yeah, so the offended person, right? The person who'd been taken advantage of. 
were the ones running to reconciliation? And did they run before or after the apology? Before, right? In both cases, the other person really hadn't gotten their apology out yet. And their family members were running towards them. And these, these stories reveal the heart of God to us, his nature. God is a reluctant judge. God is the judge, the ultimate judge, but he's a reluctant judge. And what I mean by that is that Peter wrote in, in his second letter, he, he wrote this. He said, talking about God, he said, instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God is so utterly patient with us because he understands that eternity is at stake. And he doesn't take that lightly. Remember, we've, we've looked in recent weeks, Psalm 139, right? He knit each one of you together in your mother's womb. He, he deeply cares about you. And the last thing he wants is, is eternal separation from you. So he is so patient with us. Let me shift gears here for a moment. Put my history teacher hat on for a second. When you guys think of, of traitors in American history, what's the first name that comes to mind? Who's got it? Yeah. Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold, right? Okay. In fact, you don't even have to say the word traitor now. You just say that person's a real Benedict Arnold. That's like, that's how you know you've arrived is when they substitute your name for the word, right? So Benedict Arnold was this American general during the American Revolution who kind of thought that he wasn't getting his due. He thought he was pretty great and should be appreciated a little bit more. And so he goes into this deal with the British and, and, and kind of... They, they pay him some money, and he turns over some secrets. He was going to give over what was West Point, um, this fort at the time. And, and uh, so he betrays our country, and he was the original enemy of the state in America. But what he did was nothing compared to the treason of Adam and Eve in the garden, and us for that matter. We were all enemies of our creator, believing that we had a better way of living life than the life that God offered us. And because of this treason, we were all estranged from God. So in Romans 5.10, Paul writes this. He said, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Can you believe the scandal of that verse? Just, just look at it for a moment, reread it. Let it soak in. While we were his enemy, he ended the estrangement by the death of his son. God ran to us in the person of Jesus and threw his arms around us and kissed us and welcomed us home before the apology, before we had done anything to make amends. 
I don't think we'll ever understand why God loves us the way he does. But we are being formed by this story of reconciliation. I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's page 1648. We're going to be in this for a bit. 2 Corinthians 5. 1648. We're going to start in verse 18. Paul says, All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You can just leave that open for a bit. We're going to kind of march through this line by line. So some form of the word reconcile is in there five times in those three verses. So this is an important theme that Paul wants to get across to us. And he starts out by saying, all of this is from God. So we have to ask, all of what? (laughs) And actually part of the answer is back up in verse 17, if you look right before that, where he talks about anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, right? Right? That old life is gone and we become this new thing and and that's from God. This new creation and this reconciliation between God and mankind, all of it is from him. It's his doing, his initiative, and it's work that only he can do, right? Work that only his power and grace alone can pull off, not by our good works, Nothing that we earned to achieve or said sorry enough times to deserve. He reconciled himself to us through Christ. We were the estranged party. He was the innocent one. We had walked away, but he came looking for us. Just like he did in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned that first time and they were in shame, they were hiding, and God came into the garden and said, where are you? Where are you? He didn't forgive us by turning a blind eye to our sin. He didn't neglect his justice. He sent his son on our behalf to satisfy the debt that we owed. Reconciliation came at great cost to the Father. And so we can also predict that it's going to come at great cost to us as well. Not counting people's sins against them, Paul writes. That means that it was a choice by God. He could have counted, but he chose not to. It reminds me of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, that long passage about God's love and God's love is this and it's patient, it's kind, it's all these things. One of the things that it says is that it keeps no record of wrongs. 
And that's the one that always kind of stops me in my tracks. It could keep a record, but it chooses not to. And we may never fully understand why, but the bigger question is this, are we being formed by that amazing grace? Are we actively counting people's wrongs against us? Do we have a running list of the ways that we've been offended? Because we were pursued and reunited to God by the blood of Jesus, we are then called to extend that ministry to others. He is committed to us, he says, the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal to the world through us. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, 8, he said, freely you have received, so freely give. Right? Didn't cost you anything to get it, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness, so give it away freely. Don't demand payment from others for those things. I love how Pastor Ray Orland says it. He said, Paul doesn't mention moments of reconciliation now and then when I feel like it. He said that God had given him the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, reconciliation is all I do. It's how I roll. What else is there for me as a minister of the gospel? So is the spirit of reconciliation how we roll? Is it what we're known for? I'm probably known for a lot of things. <laughs> Am I known for being a reconciler? I love the perspective of Paul in Romans 12, 18. This is so important for us to understand. He wrote, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Man, there's a lot of implications of that verse, right? And basically what he's saying is, hey, we do our part. We do our part to keep short accounts with people, to make things right with people, to extend a, an olive branch of peace to people. But we can't control whether they receive it or not. But if it's up to us, we're going to make sure that we are extending it. People have to receive it just like Jacob did when Esau came running, just like the prodigal son did when his father came running for him. They had to welcome it, just like Peter did after he was disowned by Christ. We have to fall into the undeserved embrace of our Savior. The king has a message of reconciliation for the world, and we are his ambassadors, the carriers of the good news that God wants us no matter what we've done so we represent his wishes with gladness and i want to ask a, a pretty vulnerable question this morning so those of you that usually don't answer probably just go ahead and crawl under the pew now okay <laughs> here it is do you have a story of unmerited forgiveness 
when God or a brother or sister in Christ initiated reconciliation with you in a way that you knew you didn't deserve? Do you have a story of unmerited forgiveness when God or a brother and sister in Christ moved towards you, initiated reconciliation with you in a way that you knew that you didn't deserve? Anybody willing to share a story? Yeah. No, that's okay. It was, it was hard to hear. Yeah. Sorry. No, you're fine. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? Maybe think in terms, too, of just that moment when you first received Christ, right? In that moment, just knowing, I, did, I didn't deserve what I got. <laughs> what was that encounter like? Or... Of course, I had to come with an example from my own life, in case nobody else answered the question. So I would say where I've really received that unmerited uh, favor in one way has just been from my kids. Um, I uh, had a, a season a couple of years ago where I just sat down with each of them kind of over lunch and just kind of asked them, like, uh, Kind of who was um, kind of like who was the dad that, that you wish you'd had at different moments of your childhood, like times when I maybe didn't come through like I could have, um, and then who do you hope will be you know our relationship what that'll look like moving forward and and my kids had some things to share, not in definitely not in a mean spirited way at all, but um, they definitely were like, hey, you know there were some times when you could have showed up more emotionally for us. Um, and knowing that's just kind of my own struggle and my own journey, and, and I'm aware of it. Um, but you know, to hear it um, was hard to hear because um, I wanted to be there, right? And I just didn't have the, the skill set yet to know how to do that and how to navigate it. But I was struck so much by the, the graciousness of them towards me. You know, they could have harbored some bitterness or anger or frustration with that, but each of them were so kind in the way that they shared, because a lot of them shared the same answer. <laughs> it's like they were texting each other, dad's going to ask about whatever, you know, let's all tell him. No, it's a... But you know it's, you know it's probably true when it's consistent, right? Um, but I just thought, man, that was just so unmerited. You know, I didn't deserve that kind of grace from them to know and have some appreciation for the fact that I was probably just doing the best I could and it's a struggle for me, and so that was a gift for sure um, for my kids. So, anybody else have any anything to share? Uh oh, my son. 
Uh-oh. He's like, that's not how the story went. What kind of crap are you pulling over here? Uh, I would just say, just like in the midst of my own like mental just health battles over the years and journey of healing with that, there's just been some times where like the specific stuff that I've like struggled with has had like a direct impact on just Sam and like part of that was financially being upset you know, obsessive about buying things or having things, and she continued while I was working through that and trying to grow in that, like, show me grace and be with me in it, uh, even though she had every right to be very frustrated at times. And, mm. um, yeah, just to, I don't even know, yeah, just who knows what she, she could have done or just the things that she could have said to other people about me. She just continued to believe in me and believe the best about me and, and show me love in that. And, I mean, I think with that attitude, I mean, it's like, God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So just her continuing to show up and be gracious with me helped me grow a lot in that and heal. So. Thank you. Yeah, that's good. Most people hear that okay? Yeah. Good. Thank you. I'll transfer that $20 to your account later. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Hmm. And guys, you know, the reason why I wanted you guys to think through this a little bit today and ask this question is, is that we have to get in touch with the emotions behind those stories if we're really going to be able to extend grace to others. Like, we have to feel it, right? This can't just be a conversation that we have up here. Right, of yeah, okay, God says we should reconcile, and yeah, okay, that makes sense, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's got to transfer down. <laughs> it's got to be visceral in us, right? Because when we get in touch with the emotions, that's what compels us to, to move and to extend and to give away. And Paul finishes up this passage in 2 Corinthians 5 with the words, we implore you. The sentiment there is that like we're begging you earnestly. Look back at verses 14 and 15 right above that. 
kind of for our motivation. Verse 14, Paul writes, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Christ's love compels us. How urgent is this message of reconciliation? It's a matter of eternal life and death. We can't afford to be indifferent this morning as we listen to this message. Like this is just one of many things that we might learn this week. There has to be some sense of urgency about us because we gather here on Sunday morning to be reminded of what's true. We gather here to worship and to praise, to encourage one another, literally meaning to put courage into each other. For what? For what? (laughs) To then go and tell. To be his ambassadors of this message of reconciliation. That's why we're here. We implore you to be reconciled to God. We beg you to receive it for yourselves. The way has already been made for everyone. The work of forgiveness was completed on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. Just step into it. And we all have a role in this ministry of reconciliation. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7, Paul writes this. He says, I planted the seed. Another guy who was preaching at the time, Apollos. Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who was watering is anything but only God who makes things grow. So we might not be the person that actually carries someone across the the starting line of salvation, right? And prays, prays with them to receive Jesus. But we can be a piece of the puzzle along the way, right? We've all got different gifts and abilities and ways that God wants to use us. Some of you guys have relationships with people that I never will. And so as you develop that relationship and and maybe you're too nervous to share the message, maybe you can live it out. We can all live it out before people, right? But maybe your part is just inviting them to come and to sit and then let me be the one that is the mouthpiece and use my gift, right? But I would never get that person that you know and have a relationship to come to our church. I won't have an audience with them unless you bring them with you. Leverage your relationship for eternal purposes in their life. I read one commentator this week, this was so profound, who said that the only reason the church is still on this earth is to tell people about the saving work of Jesus. Everything else we do here on a Sunday morning, we can do in heaven, and we will do, right? Worship, pray, fellowship with one another, hopefully have a potluck dinner here and there. But we won't be evangelizing people in heaven. 
Everybody who is in heaven will already know Jesus. We are here to be ambassadors of the good news, to go and tell the world that they have been pursued and loved and reconciled to God through the saving work of Jesus on the cross. That's why we're here. How does this look practically? So I'm reminded of the passage from the Sermon on the Mount that we took a look at back in the fall in the Winsome Way of Jesus series. It's from Matthew 23, chapter 5, 23 and 24. It says this. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So what is Jesus saying there? He's saying that before he wants your praise, he wants you to be right with your neighbor, your brother and sister in Christ. And the scandal of that verse, guys, right, is this, if anyone is, of, is offended with you, like you might not even know or feel like you did anything, but they're struggling because of something that you've done, that they've taken a certain way or whatever. If anyone has something against you, not if you have a problem with them, <laughs> but if somebody's struggling with you, leave your gift, go make it right with them. Why? Because we can't worship with a clear conscience when there's a spirit of disunity in the body of Christ. It destroys our testimony to the world. If I can't reconcile with the people in this room who are choosing to be here together every Sunday morning and to do life and are brothers and sisters in Christ who are family, how can I then go out into the world, the enemies of God, and be right with them when I can't even do it with my family? It wounds the heart of Jesus. Go and be reconciled. Be the initiators. Just like God ran towards us when we were unlovely. Again, Pastor Ray Ortland shared his perspective on this call. He said, the gospel being what it is and always will be, the message of reconciliation our churches should be the most reconciling, peaceable, happy places in town. We are so open to enemies, so meek in the face of injuries, so forgiving toward the undeserving. If we do make people angry, angry let this be the reason. We refuse to join in their selfish battles. We're following a higher call. We are the peacemakers, the true sons of God. As Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So if you call yourself a Christian this morning, then each one of you has been pursued by God. He initiated a saving work in your life, completely undeserved, an offering of amazing grace towards you. You were reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus. 
You are no longer estranged from the Father. And some of us just need to kind of let that reality soak in a little bit and remember. And now he's given us a ministry to go and proclaim that message to the enemies of God. So are our lives an ongoing example of going to others that we've offended or been offended by and seeking forgiveness Forgiving as the Lord has forgiven us? Or does our pride get in the way? You see, we can't both receive unmerited forgiveness from God and then refuse to give it away to our brothers and sisters. You see the double standard there, right? (laughs) It's great for me, but now you're not good enough for me to extend it to you. Guys, we need to be formed by this truth. We need to be like Esau. We need to be like the father in the prodigal son story, the offended ones who run to the offender and embrace those who have sinned against us. People who are probably believing the lie that they've sinned too greatly to ever deserve God's grace. And we need to draw them in as mutual sinners and those redeemed and remind them and ourselves how loved by God we all are. And guys, as I close, our faith has to be personal. We can't speak in generalities or be nebulous about this. Okay, so when we come on Sunday morning and we we have a message, what we have to do is we have to put names to it, right? And some of you this morning are sitting here and you might have thought of someone that, that you've offended that you need to go to and initiate forgiveness. Maybe you thought of somebody who's offended you. You're the offended one. That again, you need to initiate and go to them and seek reconciliation. So if that's the case, you've got your homework. (laughs) If nothing's coming to mind in those two camps, then we also are messages of the story of reconciliation to those who are enemies from, from God, right? We have a whole world out there that we're crossing paths with that need to know that the offer of reconciliation from Christ towards them has been granted. And they just have to step into it and believe it. And guys, we're just a few weeks away from Easter. And that's a great time to invite people to church. It's a time when they'll come. (laughs) And you've got a month to pray, to get the courage up, whatever you need to do to begin pursuing a person who you know needs to understand that they've been reconciled to God. Don't walk away from here without a name that you're putting this message to. And then pray for the courage to act on whatever it is that God's asked you to do today so that we can reflect him, we can be his ambassadors the way he's asked us to be in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your example. Time and again in scripture, you see this example of just unbelievable grace from the offended one to the offender. 
undeserved. And God, it all starts with you. You could have just written off humanity from the get-go. As soon as we crossed the line, as soon as we disobeyed, but you actually did the exact opposite. You pursued us. You called us out of hiding and shame. You put things in motion for a savior to come to take care of that debt that we owed. You chose not to count our sins against us. And Lord, we can be so petty and we can be so easily offended and so selfish when it comes to doling out freely the grace that we've been given. So God, convict us of our sin. Humble us before you and give us the power and the courage and the grace and love that we need to pursue those who need to know your love for them. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us?